amazingly, we have been at this for so long, we meaning the industry, and we still don't totally know what works. So one key goal for us across all of our teams is figuring out what works and then scaling it. To do that, we have to try a lot of things and fail. So that's part of our job, launching these pilots and then letting a bunch of them not work and being honest and open both about our successes and our failures. What's the future of health? Join doctors Jessica Shepard, Gotham Gulati, and myself, Jordan Schlain, as we embark on a conversational journey with prominent speakers, experts, and innovators from the stages of the annual health conference. The goal is to explore the ideas that put humanity at the front and center of our evolving healthcare system. After all, health is about people, isn't it? Hi, I'm Dr. Jessica Shepard. On today's episode, we bring you Rivka Friedman, where we discuss the future of home-based healthcare models. As the head of healthcare innovation at Morgan Health, an investment unit of J.P. Morgan Chase, Rivka is focused on improving the quality, equity, and affordability of employer-sponsored healthcare in the U.S. by accelerating the adoption of new approaches to care delivery. So with that, let's begin the conversation. Welcome again to the Health Official Podcast here. As we are going through talking with innovators, we're talking with strategists, we are talking with the best in our booth because we want to know what is coming up for your wellness, for your optimization, and anything that can help improve the quality of your life. Today with us, we have our guest, Rivka Friedman, who is with Morgan Health. She's a head of healthcare innovation at Morgan Health, and she is going to be spending time with us talking about exactly what it is and how the future of healthcare is really looking towards a goal of accountable care. So thank you, Rivka. And also to my co-host who's spending some time with me today, Jordan Schlain. Very excited. Thank you for being here. And we just wanted to let you know that we are excited to have you here. We want to know all the best things of Morgan Health that you can share with us and so that our listeners can really understand how the future of healthcare has changed and what you're doing to bring something different to the market. So with without further ado, Rivka, thank you for being here. Can you just give us a snapshot of what you do at Morgan Health and why you feel that this is your passion? Could we start with what is Morgan Health? We can start with that. I think we, we sure can. Yeah, let's start with what is Morgan Health. So Morgan Health is a new venture from J.P. Morgan Chase, the bank, that is trying to improve employer-sponsored healthcare, insurance and healthcare delivery. We are a group of about 30 folks that come from across areas of healthcare, private, public, you know, government, nonprofit, startups, venture and are focused on improving the quality, equity, and affordability of employer-sponsored healthcare. So we are organized into three teams that are focused on the three pillars of our organization. We have a ventures team, which invests in promising healthcare companies that are focused on the employer-sponsored insurance market. We have the healthcare innovation team, which I lead, which is charged with launching pilots, doing data analysis and research to really understand what innovative models of care could work for employer-sponsored insurance, and then scale the models that work. And then we have a team that is explicitly focused on health equity, improving health equity, solving for 
disparities by race, income, geography, gender. They do that across both areas of our business. Is this for J.P. Morgan Chase employees? The healthcare innovation work that we do starts with employees and dependents, and we have 285,000 folks in our plan. So lots of people who get insurance. But employees, we are you said? Employees and their dependents. And so their dependents. plan members. So basically, Rivka, he stole my question. Did you see how he did that? No, I didn't. But that was great. I liked it because that was actually the question that I had. But I think that that's a lot of employees and their direct, I guess you could say, family members. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have watched over in the last 15 years, a lot of employers taking stabs at modifying, upgrading, updating the corporate wellness space, or how do you, like, so I'm super curious to hear what your approach is and, and how it's going to be different from the other approaches, because you clearly come from a background of innovation and you have a huge platform. But wasn't there a recent venture with JP Morgan and Warren Buffett and, and Atul Gawande and some bunch of people? I can't remember what Jeff happened. Jeff Bezos. And Jeff Bezos. What was that, if you know what that was? And maybe, because I think that's a, you know, I think it failed, but I think there's always lessons in failure, which probably you're looking and taking stock of all that and figuring out how to go forward with a new mindset. Yes. So a few years ago, JP Morgan Chase, Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway launched a joint venture called Haven that was also focused on employer-sponsored healthcare. Those three massive companies with you know, very opinionated CEOs came together and said, how can we improve this? And their primary focus was on the rising cost of healthcare, which most of which employers have shouldered historically. And so they were really focused on lowering the cost of healthcare for their employees, but also for the companies themselves. That venture did not succeed, though it has, I would say, some successes and even more importantly, some lessons learned, which we are really thinking about day-to-day at Morgan Health. In the wake of Haven winding down, J.P. Morgan Chase, particularly Jamie Dimon, our CEO, said, I want to do this alone. I want to take another crack at this problem because it hasn't gotten better. If anything, it's gotten worse. So that was the genesis of Morgan Health. And we are, I think, learning a few key lessons from Haven, one of which is, you know, three CEOs are going to have three different visions. I think you see that today in Amazon's pursuit of Amazon Care, which is a different direction from JPMC doing Morgan Health. But more specifically in the work that we do, Haven tried to build products. And we at Morgan Health are really not building products. Can can I just double click on products? I think when a lot of people think about products, they think about something that's got a physical form that comes in a box Mm. that you can buy. When you say products, Can you define what a product is according to you in that statement? Yes. I think of it more as a solution. So it could be an insurance product. It could be a healthcare delivery product, which is a mechanism for delivering healthcare, a data product. It could be a a platform. It could be anything. So, so I'm a, you'll, you'll learn a little bit about me over the course of this interview, but like words matter to me a lot. And I, I find that if you want to change the conversation, you actually have to change the language. And so I wonder if, if just the word product itself is causing a problem because it, it's a solution and not all products are solutions. So wouldn't you want to say we're building solutions? It's a great observation. I think I'll take that. We are building solutions. I You're hitting on something that is certainly a trend that I see in the industry, which is the productization of yes. healthcare, mm-hmm. which is something that we both lean into and also have to question, right? So we're working within the employer ecosystem, which means we're working with benefits executives right. who are charged often with finding products, right, for XYZ clinical or other problem. And 
I think that and many other things have caused the productization in this environment that it's true. We are pushing back against a little bit. But I would say the key distinction in this way between Haven and Morgan Health is that we are really trying to not build those solutions internally in, in the build a product kind of way. So there are dozens of companies, hundreds of companies, we see many of them here at Health that are solving some of the biggest problems in healthcare. Our mantra is buy, not build. And part of that comes from the idea that if there are great teams that are solving for the exact problems that we and our employees are experiencing, we should partner with those teams. We should take a strategic interest in those teams through an investment. We should work hand in glove with those teams to build the product that we believe our employees and their families want, that we believe the industry needs. And then we can help those teams in our role as investor and commercial buyer to promote those products, to promote those solutions and help them proliferate. Do you have any current companies that you have your eye on or have partnered with in order to providing these solutions? We do. So our first portfolio company and also our first pilot is with a company called Vera Whole Health, which is an advanced primary care company that is focused on accountable care delivery. You mentioned accountable care. I'm just going to define it because there are many definitions of accountable care floating out there. How we define accountable care is few things. The first is advanced primary care. So having true comprehensive primary care that includes not just the primary care we know from, you know, when we were kids, but integrated behavioral health, a team of care professionals that are wrapped around the patient, really thinking about a patient's extra health needs, Mm -hmm. social needs, and the like. Multimodal care delivery, you know, both in-person and virtual as needed. Second is a connectivity to the broader ecosystem of healthcare. So when a patient comes to primary care and needs more, thoughtfulness driven by data about where to send that patient to a high-value specialist, to a solution for their chronic conditions and the like, building really that ecosystem. The third piece is incentives to reward value. That is a key component of accountable care. So you can't do all of this and then also pay fee-for-service. You need to build in payment that rewards improvements in quality reductions in employee cost, and reductions in disparities. And Vera is focused on all of those things. So Vera is our first portfolio company. We have a pilot with Vera serving our Columbus employees, about 30,000 lives in Columbus. And we are an investor in Vera Whole Health. Quick question. What is the outlook, this is coming from a, a very clinical perspective, on insurance in America, health insurance in America? Where do you see that being helpful or possibly harmful for patients when you think of insurance plans and benefits? Great question. Insurance has to be a part of this, in part because insurers are paying for many lives and they have the control over contracts. And even for employers that are self-insured, in many cases, carriers are designing those networks or designing those payment systems. And so payers and carriers in particular have to be at the table with providers in pushing forward value-based contracts. When we have conversations with other employers, with carriers, and with providers, one thing we see is that proliferation of value-based contracts has been slow in the employer market. There are a lot of reasons for that. What's the number one? Re- what's the number one reason? The number one reason depends on who you ask. The carriers say the providers don't want it. The providers say the carriers don't offer it. So where's the truth? I would point to maybe something that neither of them are going to tell you, which is employers have not demanded it. And there are many reasons for that. One of them is employer tenure isn't like Medicare tenure, right? An employee stays at a job for a couple of years, moves on. Medicare beneficiary joins at 65, is going to be on Medicare until he or she passes away. 
And so with a tenure that is in the two to five year range, why as an employer do I want to reward long-term care and long-term value if I'm not going to reap the benefits of that investment because unless, my employees will leave? Unless everybody says, all the employers say, we're going to do this because the employee that's going to show up after the one that leaves, their employer made them do it. So every, so if everybody buys in, then you then they all have the same tenure. They're exactly. all Medicare patients. I mean, exactly. they're all in the same bucket. So like, it seems to me that you're never going to get, and listen, I, I was in the White House helping with value-based care a long time ago and the providers and the, and the payers, you know, there was an article recently about pay biters, which is like this hybrid concept thing, but they're never going to agree on anything. It's like unions and you know, and, and, and like, there's always somebody that wants something else and the incentives aren't aligned. And so it seems like you really need a coalition 100%. To, to get these things done. Um, and I, and I, I'll just make a comment on the incentives piece. You said we want to give our employees what they want. And I would argue as a doctor who sees patients, they tell me what they want and I tell them what they need because they refuse to let another doctor into a geography because the more supply you have, the more demand you have. And so they said, if we put in more doctors here, we're going to get more utilization. And they just discovered that normal capitalism is if you have demand, you'll make supply. And if there's no demand, you, there's going to be no supply. I mean, it's good old fashioned econ 101, but healthcare turns it up on its head. If you have supply, you will create demand. So that's, that's why like one has to like step back and fashion this as not a capital market that runs in the same fashion that capital markets do. But you're hitting on a key tension and arguably a key problem in employer-sponsored healthcare, which yes. is that we are trying to do two things at once. We are trying to do what you described, build a system of care that delivers high-value care at low cost. And we have employees who have a lot of job prospects, especially in today's labor market, and we are trying to make them happy. Those two things are in great tension. And this is, I think, the key tension that Morgan Health is living in and trying to resolve in some ways in our work. So how do we create an ecosystem of care that both does right by patients clinically and also is exciting enough, for lack of a better word, that people will see in it surplus value that their employer offers and will be more likely to stay? And this, I think, introduces a key question of what are our metrics of success? Exactly. And I think, you know, in previous conversations that we've had, I think there is a lot of discrepancy or differences or opinions on what that means to someone's health. You know, you can ask an office full of employees, what health outcomes really make you excited? And you would get such a difference in variance in those answers. Whereas Jordan was saying earlier, you know, the need versus what the want is, is different from how we answer that question because we know when we want a certain outcome when we think of, of health and health determinants actually shift how money is used in hospital organizations or how insurance companies dictate how they're going to use a certain budget is because of health outcomes. But if we have differences in opinions in what those health outcomes should be, whether it's need or want, then we do have this huge discrepancy between how do we share that money? How do we spend that money? But also how do we drive down the cost of healthcare? Mm -hmm. Morgan Health spent a lot of time up front defining our measures of success and setting an impact framework for our work. So what are those measures of success? So our measures, we have five-year measures, then we have interim measures, but our measures And, and are interim measures, you said? Interim measures. And what, what is the timeframe on interim? 
Two years. Two years. Our five-year measures are around reducing ER utilization, affordability of care for employees, notably different from the Haven time where the measure was around employer. When you say affordability, that that is thrown around so much. And I just want to like double click on it because if I'm a member of Morgan Health or if I'm a person that works at JP Morgan or one of your companies and I go to the ER or I, I go anywhere, I have insurance. Why do I care if it's affordable? Because I'm not paying for it. So increasingly, employers have shifted costs from their own balance sheets to employees. And increasingly, employees are feeling the cost of care, including cost differential. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, I just want to make sure I I understood that. Um, So we have clinical measures, ER utilization. We have measures around management and control of chronic conditions like diabetes, asthma, hypertension, other conditions that are prevalent in the employer population. We have measures around employer adoption of accountable care models. We have measures around launching our pilots and seeing uptake in those pilots. And then, like I said, we have measures of affordability, which you can't overstate the value of the affordability measure in this climate, given, again, that, you know, with the economy, with inflation, and with the fact that healthcare has grown so expensive and is probably going to get even more expensive, given labor costs that will eventually get shifted onto employees, we have to keep our eye on what this translates to in terms of employee affordability. So those are some of our measures. What I would just note is that think about the typical benefits professional. Their measures of success may overlap with our measures, but they are not identical. Because in addition to thinking about the quality of the benefit and how expensive it is, they are thinking about things like recruitment, retention, attractiveness of the benefit in context of the broader benefits ecosystem, wellness, issues that an organization's leadership care deeply about, even if they aren't directly connected to those impact measures. And there's a tension here as employers try to, quote unquote, solve healthcare in this context of keeping the employer attractive. And so this is where I think your point about, you know, what are we solving for? Are we really solving for patients' care getting good? Or are we solving for people liking what they're getting and feeling like they have a lot of options? Just gets very real. Well, first, I just want to say that Morgan Health has some big balls. Because that's like, <laughs> I mean, like knowing the problem beforehand and knowing what you're going to tackle, I think is is profound. And, and even, you know, when you're thinking of having attempted it prior and not necessarily, you know, getting the success that you wanted, you know, earlier to then come back to the table and say, we're going to do it again. The other discrepancy I might see with with who gets what they want out of it is then you have your bigger employers and then you have your small, you know, family run employers and, and even your, your mid tier. They all really do serve differences in how they impact their employees or what the cost might be for the employee to get insurance that's relatively good. And also how we drive, because here's, the, here's the one thing I will say about insurance and, and how it has maybe not framed the best mindset on someone's health is one, the expectation of what it should do for them without the work on that person's side to ensure that they are optimizing their health and the things outside of, you know, with lifestyle factors, with your eating, with your exercise, right? So then it becomes this shift of we have healthcare no matter how we choose to live. And that for me is is a very, it's a pain point for me as a physician because I spend so much time trying to get people to understand just really how much their health 
long-term is based on what they're doing today. And not many, I, w- I would say not many, but it, patients may not see it that way. But then when they do have that critical something happen or, you know, they come up with a heart attack or whatever, then that's when all forces, all hands on deck. And that's where the cost comes in. In some ways, this is the trillion dollar question in healthcare, right? We, we started a long time ago with incentives on carriers who held the risk. We have shifted more and more to incentives for providers who are managing the care. But we still don't have incentives for patients lined up with those other provider and carrier incentives. And, you know, Jordan, you asked me earlier about affordability. Why does affordability matter? What is it? What is its relevance? And I think this gets to Jessica's question about what are the different needs of large employers versus small employers. And we are really trying to think at Morgan Health about each sector of the market, what its various stakeholders need. And how the system of care that we believe everybody should have access to and should be using can be retrofitted to different employer sizes, types, needs, right? And also different employee populations. So I am going to send you something to read afterwards. And it was by Danella Meadows, who was a professor at MIT who studied systems theory. And she came up with the rubric, where are the leverage points in a complex system? And she came up with 11 ways you can change a complex system like a government, the healthcare system, pick some super complex system. It's like, how do you even get in to change it? And incentives is number five on the list. It's not even in the top three. What are the top three? Well, I'm going to tell you, but I want you to read the article because I read it about once every quarter to refresh my memory on how how we, we very quickly go into the incentives bucket as the thing that solves it. So incentives are, I think, number five. Number four is what are the goals of the system? And so if you got the right incentives for the wrong goals, like you're not going to change that system. So are the goals explicitly, simply stated that everybody knows? Above the goals is the governance of the system that, not polices, but that, that governs those goals and those incentives. Who is involved in the power structure that like make sure those goals are achieved? The power structure is, What is the paradigm of the system? Okay, they're getting a little bit meta here. But but what is the actual paradigm that we're working with? And so you say, well, what could be greater than the paradigm? That's at the top of the pyramid. And, And the thing that's above that is the desire to want to change the paradigm that you're in, which is a real change mindset. And so as I'm listening to you talk about all these incentives, I feel like what is the big goal, right? And so if, if Morgan Health and, and you specifically, there's there's people that, you know, are in power at the company that are obviously looking at you to accomplish these goals, you know, are those goals, and you said you had them written down, but like, does everybody in the system know what the goals are? And is everybody aligned on and, those goals? Well, Keep I would it. argue that everyone's goals are aligned and everyone's goals are to get the best outcome for your health as fast and as efficiently as possible. Maybe, but that's so amorphous that you can have 50 different versions of that that actually run into conflict. So I'm not actually sure that our goals are all aligned. And I think part of what Morgan Health has been focused on is identifying the places where our goals are not in alignment. Mm. Because again, you know, benefits professionals have a set of goals that are set out in front of them that interconnect to non-healthcare benefits. And what are the most interesting non-aligned 
factors that you see that you have to kind of grapple with to solve? I would call out two. The first is competitiveness in the marketplace, which gets right to your point, Jordan, about how how many choices people have and how that doesn't necessarily lead to better care. It does. When you're an employer that's competing for the best talent, part of that competition is showing that you have the best benefit. What is best? Best is most. It's a you know, it's more like is better. bounty. I think that's how the market perceives best. It is, does. It's not just that you have healthcare that will keep you healthier. That's table stakes. You have, you know, you have the, I don't want to call out too many specific examples because there are wonderful benefits that employers are offering. You know, new, new longer parental leaves as a great example. How much more attractive does that make me as an employer when I'm offering a long parental leave? That's an example of a benefit that is aligned, I think, with healthcare goals. But there are plenty of other benefits we offer that are superfluous. They're not really aligned with healthcare goals. They're aligned with other goals around market competitiveness. And that's a place where Morgan Health isn't focused on attracting talent to JP Morgan Chase. That's the benefits organization's job and a job that they are way well more well-suited that, to accomplish than we are. But it does put some of our work in tension because to your point, if we, if we accept the premise that better healthcare isn't actually about more, it's about better. more careful, better designed. Better is better. Yes, and and sometimes less is better. Yes. That has some tension with the market competitiveness issue. So that's one. The second that I would highlight is Morgan Health is trying to take a systems orientation to this work. We're trying to identify where, to take your point, the incentives is one level, but just where the various stakeholders in healthcare are aligned and where they aren't and what we need to do to bring that system more into alignment. Our benefits organization is focused on the day-to-day. They have people who are not getting the healthcare they need who are complaining, and they have to solve for that. And that's something that we have the luxury of ignoring that they don't. But again, I think it creates some tension for an innovation shop anywhere, not just Morgan Health, and an organization that is actually trying to run the day-to-day. So we, we talked a little bit about like social determinants of health. So last year at the podcast, we interviewed everybody and we asked them to define what health meant to them and what health care meant to them. Because if everybody has different definitions of a word and how can you have a conversation when, you know, words are unstable containers for ideas that everybody in their own mind brings their baggage to that container of what, of what, of what it actually means to them. So health was defined as what you can do for your, my summary of interviewing lots of people is health is what you, is what you are, your health and what you can do for yourself. A little bit of agency, a little bit of a DIY, whereas healthcare is when you can't and you must go to the system to seek counsel or help external to what you can't do on your own. And so, you know, it seems that the average person would like all the tools to do things on their own as much as they could. And then when they go into the system, which they must use from time to time, it's simple and easy. But one of the things going back to incentives is a company I started a a long time ago had this is we would, we had this thing called pay for engagement, where if the doctor engaged with communication, so you you talked about like these five-year measures, I would say the most important measure is how much communication is happening between whether it's an app or an email or a text, it's hard to do, between the person and the medical system. And what are those communication touch points? And because as soon as it gets tricky and hard and you can't get what you want, like calling AT&T's you know, help or some of these doctor's offices, like you know, can put on hold and that makes people go to the ER because they can't get into the thing. And so like there, it seems to me like that's like the easiest, hardest. I was going to say easiest and hardest at the same time. I think most of the advanced primary care and virtual primary care companies out there, including Vera, are really thinking about not just multimodal communication, getting patients in a lot of different 
channels of communication, but frequency of touch points and the care of those touch points, right? Because you need to make clear to patients that you're available whenever they need you without putting them off. We all know too much spam, you're going to start deleting it. So how as a provider do you break through that? But back to your question of what are the measures that matter, just listen to a great podcast, the Relentless Health Value podcast. This is an old episode that was about primary care measures, which is something we're thinking about a lot, both for our Vera pilot and also just more broadly for our work on primary care. How do you measure good primary care? So hard to measure good primary care, especially in an environment where, again, today's diabetes intervention pays off five, 10 years from now. So what are we going to hold our primary providers accountable for today? This phenomenal podcast episode about a team of researchers that developed a set of questions that you can ask to patients that is super easy to understand and that is validated in a number of domains as connecting to lower utilization of inappropriate healthcare services, lower costs, better outcomes. The questions are things like, my provider cares about my health. My provider has a full picture of my health. My provider communicates with me when I want them to. Really basic stuff that everybody can understand. Like low level of health literacy needed to answer these questions, which I think will make people more likely to answer them. And the fact that those are as good, if not better, at predicting whether my diabetes is going to be under control, whether I'm going to go to the ER less, as something like ER utilization as a measure, it just sort of blew my mind. Well, it's, have, it's about trust, isn't it? Yeah. It sure is. I was really alluding to that, is that trust factor between multiple kind of communities, the provider, insurance carriers, patients. If you were to tomorrow crack that code on everything that we're talking about here today, what would the ultimate hope be, you know, from Morgan Health? Would it be to possibly acquire an insurance company? Would it be to be the one who comes up with the delivery of how that transaction is going to look like with employers and insurers? What does that, what does it really mean? Like when you would say you're overnight like success. We, we success. did it. Success for us looks like a few different things. I'll call out the most important ones that are on my mind. The first is what actually will work in healthcare. Amazingly, we have been at this for so long, we meaning the industry, and we still don't totally know what works. So one key goal for us across all of our teams is figuring out what works and then scaling it. To do that, we have to try a lot of things and fail. So that's part of our job launching these pilots and then letting a bunch of them not work and being honest and open both about our successes and our failures. Second is how do we actually scale what works in our own employee base, but also beyond JPMC's four walls into the sector. And in order to do that, we need, and Jordan, you made this point earlier, we need connectivity with other employers because a lot of this work happens in a vacuum where the people who are designing health benefits for their organization are just doing their best to keep up with, you know, all the incoming from vendors and incoming from leadership and, you know, this year's benefit. And it's just, it's, it's a hamster wheel. And to some extent, we have to break through that and say, we tried something and this piece of it worked well, and we want to tell you about it so that you can launch it too. So that's one piece of our success. I think a second piece of our success is, I mean, look around us at health. There are thousands of companies that are trying to solve basically all the same set of problems. We need to help the companies that are making a difference scale. We need to get them more exposure to other companies. And we also need to help them refine their products for this market. And how, and how do they find you? How do you find them? Is there like a 
inquire on the website or do you have people scouring the floors looking for things? Yes. I mean, what yes. is the what is the actual ground game to to like find these companies? And then once you find them, and and I'll just say when I had my little startup and we made a big difference, it was eventually sold. But to get the attention of a Morgan or once we had their attention to get ingested into their system, you know, it, it costs so much money and time for the company to work with you. Like there's no, there's, you know, I mean, if you invest in them, then that, that takes the pressure off. But is that always on the table, the investment? The investment is not always on the table. To answer your first question, we have a team that pounds the pavement. They are working night and day at this conference, having meetings with companies that are focused on ESI, really trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. Once they identify a company that is promising, they do deep diligence on that company, you know, meet their leadership team, really look at their data, the like. And all of that leads up to a potential investment. The investment is really the beginning. Once we're an investor in a company, we are working very closely with them on the product side to really refine what is this product? How do we achieve product market fit? What is the product that not just today's employers are buying, but th that tomorrow's employers should, could, would buy? And how do we make this product that? So we're trying to really move both pieces of this, both the buyers and the product or solution designers to say, can we make the solutions that are going to be available tomorrow better? And can we get more employers primed to desire and buy those solutions? I see that where it's, it becomes a kind of mar a marketplace, one of education or commercialization for an actual product slash solution. Exactly. There's also connectivity between our products, right? That we sometimes try to, right. to highlight. As a great example, we invested in Vera Whole Health and then invested in the transaction where Vera and Castlight came together. Vera, phenomenal clinical model, really thinking about working with local primary care delivery. Castlight, phenomenal tech. There's a clear marriage there where the two can come together and be more of the product that an employer would need and want to buy for their employees. Got it. And, and so what are, what are the biggest challenges? Like, well, I mean, one, two, and three, like as you go forward and try to do this and it I applaud you because it's it's I know it's mind numbing to, to uh, of all the things you're trying to accomplish with all these different groups. But what what is your so the hundred obstacles? Just pick three. <laughs> I was going to say there are too many. There are too many. I'll well, highlight which one keeps you up at night. That's hard to answer. I'll highlight three challenges. Maybe a couple that are more than meets the eye. The first that I would highlight unexpectedly, I think, is data. Data is a huge challenge. It's a challenge for employers, a challenge for companies, and it can be a rate limiter. Right, Because if you don't have good data and phenomenal analysts to tell you what those data say, you're automatically hamstrung from figuring out what is this product, what do my employees need and want, and how can I you know, make the two work together. So data is one. And it's also just, I mean, we are in a moment right now where we are on the precipice of employer healthcare data solutions getting amazing, but we're not there yet. And I'm sure there are companies on this floor right now who will say, yes, we're going to be the next. And I can't wait to meet them. That's one. Two is, you know, the sort of structural problem of employer-sponsored healthcare. Again, we've talked about this, right? Like competitive labor market, people are competing for employees. They're sometimes designing a healthcare product that looks attractive rather than that necessarily is the most effective. And you put that together with tenure issues where the ROI isn't necessarily there. And we have a group of buyers of employer-sponsored healthcare that is very hard to convince and for good reason, right? A rational employer healthcare buyer is not necessarily interested in the product we're building. So how do we get beyond that is a huge problem. That definitely keeps me awake at night. 
Those are probably the two. I yeah. could name 50 more, but those are the two. Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's legit. Do you have a solution for me? <laughs> no. <laughs> Give I, us yeah, solutions, I, I would Jordan. need to think long and hard about all these different things that you're trying. I mean, you know, for me, I, I look at what's going on here as, as a really, it's all fascinating incrementalism. The big question is, is, should employers have any place in healthcare at all? Like, I mean, if you really want to zoom out and ask that question, because it's an anomaly based on, you know, World War II, I think. And so most other countries don't have this. Now, I don't know if that's better or worse. So, but, but I think- It is certainly the genesis of the problems that we're talking about today. There are things about our system that many would say make American healthcare the best there and, is. And the worst. And yes, there are things about it that make it the worst. I don't have any solutions right now, but I do think getting- <laughs> He's going to call you later. Think, He's going to think about it. I do think, I do think it. getting the paradigm right. So like the way I think about it, when I presented this to the American Medical Association a while back is that there are three actors in healthcare. You know, so when people say patient-centered care, I'm like, in the center of what? Like, that's like having a, you know, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. It's jargon. So, like, I'd like to get rid of jargon and, like, let's talk about what we're actually talking about, which is we want people to get good outcomes, whatever that means to them. So, how do you get a good outcome? And you, you touch on it. So, the three actors are, there's the patient. We'll call them the individual because maybe they're not sick. There's the clinician. I don't call them providers because my Uber driver is a provider. And I think it dumbs down the profession. And then there's the data. So those three things all have to kind of come together in some elegant format where communication is the vehicle with which those three actors play together. And between the doctor and the patient, that's where empathy exists. That's to your point. Like if I feel valued and I have trust, I'll probably do things. Between the doctor and the data is where insights come from. Between the patient and the data is empowerment, right? And so when you start to like, what is the paradigm? Okay, so if this is the paradigm, how do you then tackle these things? Totally. This is a space that really excites me right now, in part because we invested in a company called Embold Health, which is a comparative quality data company. So they are putting data into individuals' hands and into clinicians' hands, as well as into systems' hands, carriers and the like, to say, what does quality actually mean? Talk about a term of art in our industry that's overused and underdefined or ill-defined. They have defined quality and they have the What's data to back it up. It's called Embold. And one, there are a couple of things about the company that I find really exciting, one of which is they are really thinking critically about how to get these data to be used, right? Because I think, Jordan, part of your point is it's all out there, but we're not making good use of it. And I have had enough conversations with benefits professionals at conferences and such where I hear consumerism is never going to happen, that I, I think to myself, part of my job as the contrarian is to say, no, we will make it happen. We will make consumerism happen. So that maybe is the, the piece of the triangle you drew that is patients or individuals and their data. You know, it's interesting on quality, and I, I can't remember who said it, but like the people that are defining quality are generally not the people that are doing the work. But there's an outside set of people looking at it, and then they say, this is what quality is. And we're going to define it. In medicine, a quality medicine or procedure has to go through the FDA. There is a massive process of validation, peer review that happens before you get a quality drug procedure. And so these quality measurements are not run through an FDA. Well, and think about that in relation to how you would define quality as a person, which is like six weeks after my knee replacement, am I running again? You had a knee replacement? No, I didn't. Oh Thank God. goodness. No. I was about to I was say, like, you're too young for that. No, that's right. So right but functional so outcomes. So quality is a term of art. And I think that 
One could argue that the best measure of quality is the cost of care going down and people's outcomes. And again, if you have a knee surgery, how soon are you back to walking and how many visits did you have to go to the doctor's office? So to me, the least amount of, inter- I mean, as a doctor, I tell people I'm protecting them from the healthcare system because the system pre-value-based care, the sicker you get, the more money they make, right? I would so, have to wholeheartedly agree with that. Well, statement. so if imagine if everyone's income was based on everyone's outcome. Now, outcome is another measure that like, how do you measure an outcome? But I would argue that if you have a problem and, and there's like a, you know, wave your magic wand and say, if it was all better, it would look like this. You wouldn't have diabetes. You wouldn't have to take a pill. Like those are all things that you know are going to lower the cost because there's less pills and less doctor visits. If our CEO, Dan Mendelson, were here, he would say that we should bring that paradigm into the employer landscape and hold benefits professionals accountable for outcomes of care. Mm-hmm. That is, I think, at the very least, a ways away, but it fits into the paradigm that you're drawing, which is if these are the outcomes we want, we need to pay for them. Well, I would argue that you have to invest in them. And I like to steal a little language from the finance community because when I tell people how much of your income would you invest in your health compared to what you invest in everything else? So we invest in our house, we have a mortgage and we invest in our garden and we invest, we invest our resources into things, but nobody looks at their health as an asset that should be investable and, and they want someone else to pay for it. You know, I'm smelling a company idea. I mean, imagine <laughs> if you as an individual were given data on the ROI of your today spending on healthcare so that you were able to see it more as an investment. It's a fascinating idea. Well, so that's kind of what you're doing that. That's kind of what I do as a, I try to tell people about their, so we're all depreciating assets. So let's start with that sad premise. After the age of 24, we stop growing. I don't think people realize that. Well, we are. So the question is, is what is the slope of the curve? Like we're all going to die, but nobody wants to think about that. Although we thought about it during COVID for a minute. And so if you knew what your future self, your 10 years from now self, looked like and where it should be and could be. And you had a feedback loop to tell you like, well, you're going down the curve a little faster. And here are the things mm-hmm. that you can bring you up. Like then you have visibility into your future self. And I, think I think that's what we were saying is metrics and trends of, of what you're doing currently, but also looking at future outcomes is really where people need to make that connection in order to up their investment into their own health, but also for providers to but tune they have into to it trust more it because yeah. i don't know if people trust their employers i don't know if people trust their insurance companies i know they don't i don't you know the people if you look at where trust exists in the world it's like firefighters pharmacists nurses doctors you start getting in the 70 percent down to doctors now they doctors used to be in the 80s and and then you have like everybody else is way down below so how do you build that trust and how do you you know and i think you do that you know, I think those are great questions. Well, trust, to according consider. to a friend of mine who wrote a book on trust, is based on three things, which is honesty, authenticity, and benevolence. And if you do those three things over time and over and over again with fidelity, like you will trust. So, like I think there's so many factors that, like, but ultimately people want. I believe they don't want to suffer. There, are, there might be people that like suffering because that's a separate issue and they're outliers. The majority of people don't want to suffer and they don't want to have to spend their time in the healthcare system if they don't have to. A hundred percent. And I think these dynamics are things that employers are very keyed into. I think they know the line between what their employees want to hear from them and what they would need to hear from somebody else, their doctor such, right? They're very keyed into this trust issue. 
Well, I wanted to thank you again for your time because this is one, again, big balls for you to, you know, take on this headache. I, I, I would, you know, from a clinician standpoint, because these are things that we deal with, like in a visit with a patient in 15 minutes in, in micro ways for them to see their health outcome, for them to understand how the insurance plays a part in that. And then in the healthcare system in America, how it's either helping or harming them in that journey to have a quest for, for better health. So I think that these are definitely innovative ways for us to change that conversation topic. I think when people have innovation or technology, like we're seeing here at Health, is those are all wonderful and very helpful to the, the health landscape. But we also have to change that conversation. And I think this is where I have seen, you know, this discussion, the benefit of, of Morgan Health is being committed to, again, changing that conversation in the context of how everyone fits into that paradigm of health outcomes, but also how it's delivered and the cost. I mean, I think if anything, the cost of it should be a, a big part of that conversation as well. So we have a few questions for you that have nothing to do with Morgan Health, but really more about you on a personal level. But we want to know, what is your morning routine look like? Ooh, morning routine. I am a Pelotoner. So I what do time do you wake up? Class, 5.50. Nice. Peloton class at 5.50 a.m. I like that it's a 5.50. It's so Do you set an alarm clock to wake up? <laughs> Old enough that I don't need to anymore, Jordan. That's good. That's Natural. the right answer. That's the right answer. We just, we just talked right. to the CEO of Aura, and I tell people always wake up naturally. It's how you eliminate chronic diseases. I'm glad I'm doing something right. Yeah. So 5.50 a.m. wake up, Peloton in the morning, a couple of emails, and then I wake up my kids. I have three daughters. Mm. How old are they? They're almost eight, almost five, and two and change. Love it. So, and then I'm in it with them for an hour. I'm sure you guys know. Young kids. like three daughters know. also. There and you go. Son. I have two sons. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, breakfast and the like lunches get out the door and all that and then i walk them to their various schools daycares etc i love a morning walk that's a key part of my morning routine when i walk back and i have my quiet time with maybe a podcast now do you work from home i work what's the word hybrid i work okay, hybrid great. so i'm i'm two or three days a week in the office the rest at home lovely and then what makes you in this particular space feel inspired or motivated when it comes to health or wellness or outcomes of health I love hearing real stories, right? It's easy to get caught up in the systems thinking, the venture language, all that. I love hearing real stories. I love talking to people, even if they're hard stories, right? About a tough experience, I find them grounding. So I really try to engage with people mm -hmm. in their healthcare experiences and just hear from them, what was this like? And some of that is, you know, in my work today, if somebody is using our Vera clinics in Columbus. I love hearing about their experience, including the warts, because there are always warts in a launch, mm -hmm. right? But but I also have loved hearing the stories of where people see impact because it's easy to get caught up in the behind the curtain, behind the, behind the scenes stuff. But I, I like hearing real world impact stories. Well, thank you, Rivka. Thank you for being with us here in the Health Podcast with Jordan and I as the co-host. And we hope that Jordan can offer some more answers. <laughs> Solutions. 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 Offerings. Um, and I'll be keeping a close eye on Morgan Health to see how we can, again, reframe that conversation and make, make big change. And I'm rooting for you. I think you are uniquely positioned given that you're a bank. You understand investment. You have lots of employees. There's like, you know, this is yours to lose. 
Rivka. I'm, I'm watching you. I hear you, Jordan. And, and I, I I'm have, rooting I, for us too. Yeah. Well, I have high expectations that you can make a dent in this universe. And, and ultimately, the only way this, like, the, the system will change is, is if someone can show an example of how it works. And if you can solve that and you just, you know, nail it before you scale it, right? Then all of a sudden, people go, oh my God, that works. We should do that, you know? And you have to be very demonstrative with your findings, warts and all, you know? You hit it. I mean, there are a lot of causes for pessimism in the world of employer-sponsored healthcare, but I will highlight one cause for optimism, which is A, we have a phenomenal team, and B, we are actually not the leaders in this space. There are employers that have quietly been at this for some time, and we have made it our priority to learn from them. So Mm -hmm. the Boeings, the Walmarts, the GMs, large employers with similar interests to ours who have been really thinking about how to resolve some of the tensions in employer-sponsored healthcare. We have the privilege of learning from employers who who are the leaders in the space. So that's cause for optimism for me. I'm optimistic, but I'm also sober <laughs> about how hard it is to change anything in healthcare. So yes, listen, if it was easy, it would have been solved a long time ago. Right. Now well, we've got Rivka and Morgan. Yes. Thank you Thank again. you so much thank for having so me. Much. It's back. great to be here. Thanks for listening. If you're still there, I'm hoping it's because you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. We will be releasing new episodes regularly. And to stay on top of the hottest topics, simply subscribe to Health Matters. That's H-L-T-H Matters on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. See you next time.